Uh, every April, uh, golf fans around the world tune in to watch one of the most highly anticipated golf tournaments in the world, talking about the Masters. If you're not a golf fan, you probably dread this event because golf coverage really takes over TV for that weekend. And for a lot of us, golf coverage is only slightly less exciting than like C-SPAN, you know, but... Uh, but golf tournaments are kind of strange, you know, there's, there's uptight rules, the polite applause, preppy attire, there's a lot of weird stuff, and uh, why would anybody care about this golf tournament? And for one, it's, it's very exclusive. To get into the Masters, you can't just be anybody, you have to be invited, you have to be uh, asked to play, but it's actually even more exclusive than that. To attend the Masters, you have to have tickets, of course, and the tickets are not easy to come by. Tickets are generally, uh, they run in the family. They're passed down through family from generation to generation, and so if you're looking for tickets, you have to find some family that's, that's selling theirs for that year, and you're going to pay for it. It's going to cost you. For example, if you wanted tickets to this last uh, Masters tournament earlier this year, it would have cost you around $7,000. That's a, that's a lot of golf. So yeah, the Masters is a very exclusive, very expensive, extravagant event, and certain people play, certain people attend, and that's just the way it is. But to be honest, uh, that's, that's how a lot of these kind of things go. You know, the World Series is getting to be that way. The Super Bowl is like that. But any world championship is, is, is very exclusive. And the, sort of the message that all these sports are sending to the world, to, to players and to fans, is that, hey, you've got to be somebody to make it here. You don't get here on accident. You get here because you met some kind of very specific requirements. Well, thankfully... That's not how God works, right? That's not how his church works. And that's one of the things we're going to talk about this morning. As we continue in our series, Viral, uh, you were here last week. You know, we talked about a, a biblical approach to evangelism. Evangelism, just telling people about Jesus. It's something that we all should be doing as followers of Jesus, but it could be a little hard to do. And last week, we talked about simply the idea of living like Jesus, living in a way that draws people's attention and, and forces them to ask questions. And so that means we've got to align our lives to be like Christ. Not an easy thing to do, certainly, but I think that's, ha- that's what's necessary to, to, to share Christ in this culture today. Uh, you, people need to know that the Christian life is really livable, that it actually works. And, and this morning, we're going to talk about one simple and significant way that we can live like Jesus, a way that we can interact with believers and non-believers alike, that that's easy, that's fun, and that's compelling. And before we get to that, though, let me ask you a question. This is like a little uh, Bible trivia, only there's no prizes, so uh, you don't have to try that hard. Uh, How would you complete the following sentence? The Son of Man came. Think about that for a moment. Now, you may not have any idea how to complete that sentence. That's totally fine. You may not even know that the Son of Man is Jesus. That's a name he used regularly for himself. But, uh, but just thinking about why Jesus came, you might complete that sentence in different ways. But there's actually three different ways that the New Testament completes that sentence. Some of you may recognize, but I think one might, uh, might surprise us all. So one way the New Testament completes the sentence is this. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Anybody think of that answer? A couple of people, okay, that's good. Not as many as I'd hope, but that's okay. Uh, 
The second way the New Testament uh, completes the sentence is this. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Anybody think of that one? All right, all right good. That's helpful. Uh, there's a third way, and uh, I think the third way that the Bible completes the sentence might surprise us. Here it is. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. Yeah. Eating and drinking. These, these first two passages uh, that we look at tell us that why, uh, what Jesus came to achieve, the, the why of, of why Jesus came. He came to seek and save the lost. He came to, to free us from sin, to give his life as a ransom, just like we sang about this morning. But the, the third passage tells us the how, the manner in which he accomplished these things. He came to do certain things, but the way he does it is perhaps a little bit surprising for us. He came eating and drinking. Jesus did some of his best work sitting around a table. And we've called the series Viral. Uh, it's about spreading the gospel. And my goal is to help us find simple, real, reasonable ways that we can all share the gospel, even those of us who are not gifted evangelists. One of the best ways we can do that is sitting around a table, eating and drinking, and not in, in, in an exclusive way like a golf tournament, but in a way that's inclusive. Jesus did that, and we can too. So I want us to look at just some of the ways that eating and drinking can be be a part of our own strategies in in sharing the gospel. And one thing we want to notice right away is who Jesus ate with. His his enemies regularly accuse him of something, and that helps us understand a little bit about who Jesus ate with. He was regularly accused of being a drunkard and a glutton. And I don't think there's any truth to those claims, but it tells us a little bit about how frequently Jesus would have eaten with other people and, and the kind of person that he ate and drank with. Uh, the Bible says Jesus regularly ate with sinners, with tax collectors and prostitutes, you know, people who were total sellouts in their culture. And this, this emphasis on eating and drinking, it really starts from the very beginning of his ministry. In Jesus' very first miracle, he shows uh, uh, the importance of this idea. John chapter 2, there's a great example of of the surprising nature of what we might call uh, table fellowship. Uh, So let's take a quick look at John chapter 2, starting in the very first verse. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. So Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He didn't realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside. He said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you've saved the best for now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and the disciples put their faith in him. So a couple of things I want us to notice here. First of all, Jesus is going to be invited to every wedding in town after this, right? Because he doesn't just make like a little bit of wine. He makes a lot of wine. By my estimation, about 180 gallons of wine. That's a lot. That's a a bit extravagant. I mean, it is the equivalent of like 900 bottles of wine. 
that Jesus makes. But, you know, you've got to consider the average wedding at this time was anywhere from two to seven days ceremonies. So that's still a lot of wine. That is a lot of wine. It's extravagant. I mean, that's, everything Jesus does is, is just like that, right? But the most fascinating aspect of this story, uh, not counting the awesome relationship that Jesus and his mother seem to have, but the most fascinating aspect of this story is in verse 6. Jesus uses these ceremonial washing jars. These jars that would sit just outside the door, and, and the Jews would perform the uh, would use these to perform an elaborate uh, uh, ceremonial hand washing before they went in to eat uh, at somebody's house. And so, if a Jew had had come in contact with a Gentile, had been contaminated by that, then they would wash themselves with this ceremonial water so as to purify themselves before they entered a person's home. And there's a very specific prayer that they would pray, a whole complicated ceremony. But what's important to notice here is that Jesus takes these jars, these, these symbols of separation between Jew and Gentile, between us and them, between insiders and outsiders, those who can come in and those who cannot come in, and he fills them with wine, like the universal symbol of hospitality and fellowship. And he does the same kinds of surprising things all throughout his ministry. Jesus was constantly blessing people, catching people off guard all the time, and then using those moments to teach something about himself. And one of the ways he did that that we often overlook is he ate and drank with people. Jesus used that table fellowship to surprise people. Let's look at a couple other examples. This one comes from Luke 14. When Jesus noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, don't take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you might have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this other man your seat. Well, then humiliated, you'll have to take the least important place. But when you're invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all your fellow guests. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So in this moment, Jesus teaches everyone something very valuable. He says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And beyond just being a valuable life lesson, Jesus is doing something very significant. He's not just passing on advice. He's really talking about himself, because he had willingly humbled himself, leaving his place as equal with God, coming to earth as a man, willing to humble himself even to the point of death. And the end result is that he would be exalted, taking his rightful place at the right hand of God. And so Jesus uses this moment not just to poke holes in the typical custom of the day, but to point everyone to the truth about himself. But he does it in such a a non-threatening way around the table. One more moment I want us to look at with Jesus around the table. Uh, One more table moment with friends that Jesus chose to reveal the truth about himself in a very unique way. Jesus has been walking down the road with a couple of friends, but they don't recognize him. They don't realize who they're talking to. Look at Luke 24. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he was going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us. It's nearly evening. The day's almost over. So he went and stayed with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he began to give it to them. 
Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. Well, they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? See, Jesus had spent a considerable time with them talking and teaching, but it's as they're relaxed, dining with him, that's when he chose to reveal himself in an amazing way. And what's most amazing is that Jesus appears here after he's already died. He's, he's been resurrected. And his resurrection appearances are, are kind of rare, but makes this one all the more meaningful. In fact, most of his resurrection appearances also involve food as well. But, but Jesus appears to these folks, and he wants this moment to go viral. He wants them to tell other people about it, which they did because they told it to Luke. He wrote it down for us, and we can read it. So in each of these instances, Jesus used time around the table, time eating and drinking, to reveal significant truth about himself. Well, in the same way, you and I can use time around the table to surprise people, to ultimately point them to God. Jesus understood there's just something disarming about sitting down together with people that creates an environment where real life change can happen. But even in these examples, Jesus helps us realize something else. Uh, It could be a little bit dangerous. In each of these instances, Jesus is, is putting himself out there for a little bit of risk, risk of rejection or worse. And I think that that risk is something that prevents us from living in the, the way that Jesus lived. I'm not alone in thinking that. You know, our culture used to be just apathetic towards Christianity, take it or leave it, right? But now it's really hostile. Uh, but I want you to listen to the wise words from Rosaria Butterfield. Uh, Rosaria Butterfield, besides having a surprising name, is a very surprising person. She used to be, in her words, a radical feminist lesbian. She was a tenured professor of English at Syracuse University, and, and she had a neighbor who invited her over to eat several times. And throughout those interactions, she became a believer. Now she's a mom, she's a pastor's wife, and she writes a lot about this idea of eating and drinking. Listen to what she says. If you believe that these are dangerous times, then you're right. The worldview du jour is called intersectionality, the belief that who you truly are is measured by how many victim statuses you can claim, with human dignity only accruing through the intolerance of disagreement of any kind. She goes on to say this. This has landed Christians squarely in a post-Christian world, where the highest achievement of personhood is this, the autonomous, independent individual finding meaning in nothing but himself. Thoughtful Christians know that the steady erasure of Christian tradition in the day-to-day fabric of life will mean sooner or later that Christians will find ourselves living like the early church in hostile Rome. How tempting it is to withdraw. How easy it is to let fear rule our hearts as we shelter ourselves and our children from evil. How afraid we are to speak when our words, in spite of good intentions and biblical integrity, are declared hate speech. How ought we to live? Your best weapon is an open door. Our best strategy, our best weapon, she says, is an open door. Practicing hospitality, inclusive fellowship in a world that's hell-bent on individuality. So I want us to talk about this. I want us to, to talk about how we can live with an open door. And the first thing to realize is is what the barriers are. What keeps us from living like Jesus lived? Knowing that there's risk, but doing it anyway. I think one of the barriers is simply pressure. Our culture has set the bar so high for entertaining other people. 
But hospitality is not the same as entertaining. Uh, Even in these examples from Jesus that we looked at, he's not actually hosting any of these dinners that he went to. In fact, uh, one of the authors I read talking about Jesus turning water into wine said that the custom at Jewish weddings at this time was for all the guests to bring a little wine or bring a little food. And so the author suggested that maybe the reason they ran out of wine at this particular wedding was because Jesus and his disciples showed up empty-handed, you know? Uh, so Jesus is not modeling for us how to host a perfect dinner party. Uh, the, the whole idea of hospitality is not the same as entertaining. Entertaining has been hijacked by Martha Stewart or, or by Pinterest, but it doesn't have to be that way. I mean, the reality is, uh, is none of us live that way. If I asked us to raise our hand if we ate with napkin rings this week, very few of us would raise our hands, Right? If I asked you to raise your hand, if you used paper plates at one of your meals this week, probably a lot more of us would raise our hands, right? That's because we're all real people. We just lead real lives, and that's good. Jesus was real. He was a real person. He led a real life with other people. He wasn't embarrassed to show up to a wedding empty-handed, and oh, hey, do you mind if I bring a dozen of my friends, right? No one's forcing us to host an elaborate dinner party for 20 people. Just open the door. Let your friends and neighbors into your real life. That action alone is so uh, disarming and genuine that you're sure to have questions come your way. I talk to people all the time who say, yeah, man, at the end of the day, we're so tired, we put the kids to bed and just flop on the couch, watch a little Netflix. Well, guess what? So do a lot of other people. So invite somebody over and be honest with them. You know, hey, we're going to be in our pajamas at 9 o'clock, probably fall asleep on the couch at 10.30, just let yourself out, right? <laughs> it's real life, you know. Uh, hosting people, being hospitable is not the same as entertaining. It doesn't have to be Pinterest-worthy. More than anything, it has to be genuine, real, normal. Don't let pressure and false expectation get in the way of living like Jesus lived. Another big obstacle is busyness. We're all too busy. These past couple of weeks, everybody starting back into their fall schedule means we're all even busier, except for retired people, because apparently they're busy all the time. I, I used to look forward to retirement, and the more I talk to retired people, I think, yeah, they're busier than I am. I think I'll just keep working, you know, but... It's not lack of desire that keeps us from being more hospitable. The number one barrier is, is time. Most of us are not walking around with extra time wondering what we should do with it. I mean, think about even uh, 15, 20 years ago, you never would have dreamed that in the near future you'd be able to make a phone call while riding in your car or that you'd be able to send electronic mail while riding in your car while talking on the phone or that you'd have a device that allowed you to record your favorite TV shows and watch them anytime you want. And you could even skip the commercials, right? Or you could turn on your computer and you could see on the screen people that you're talking to that live somewhere else. You'd never have to travel for meetings anymore. If you knew all that stuff way back then, you'd probably think, wow, what am I going to do with all of my free time? And yet we've filled all that time with more stuff, The only unhurried person to ever live was Jesus. You read about his life and hurried is not a word that jumps to your mind. Jesus came to offer us all a better way of living. He said, I came that you might have life and have it to the full, but not full of stuff, 
full of people, relationships, meaningful things. I think it's vital for us to take a step back and ask ourselves if we really live at a pace that makes us available to other people. That's critical if we're going to have any hope of making a difference in the lives of other people. Uh, Author and pastor John Ortberg, he's coined the phrase, hurry sickness. I think we all suffer from that a little bit. And he says, love and hurry are fundamentally incompatible. Love always takes time. And time is the one thing that hurried people just don't have. Let's not let busyness destroy our ability to live like Jesus lived, to love other people well by inviting them into our lives. It doesn't have to be extravagant, just simple. Uh, We had some folks we used to get together with all the time, and we would just eat frozen pizza. I mean, that's the meal that you make when you've given up on dinner, right? Frozen pizza, but... But it was great because we spent all our time talking and sharing and we spent very little time cooking or no time doing the dishes. You just, just spent time with people together. Just keep it simple. Another major obstacle to engaging people is simply fear. We've all been conditioned to be afraid of the unknown, afraid of inviting strangers into our house, uh, afraid of our neighbors, and they've been conditioned to be afraid of us. But somebody's got to break the cycle of fear. In a a meal, that's one of the least threatening things there is. Uh, Earlier in the series last week, we talked about a verse from 1 Peter chapter 3. And the verse talks about living questionably, being ready. And, And Peter says this. He says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you, to give a reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. But I want us to think about the context around this verse for a minute. If you look back a bit, Peter's quoting from Isaiah the prophet, and the instruction is very, very clear. He says, when you encounter other people, don't fear, don't be afraid. Even when everyone around you chooses fear, you have a hope that's greater. Live out that hope, and don't be afraid to talk about it. So fear is a common barrier, but it doesn't have to be. Busyness doesn't have to be a barrier. The the, the pressure to entertain doesn't have to be. All these things pale in comparison to the hope that we have in Christ and the joy that comes from sharing that hope with other people. It's so easy for us to just stick to ourselves or only to, to eat with those we already know we're already comfortable with. But in Jesus' time, it was highly taboo to eat with people of a different social standing or people of a different religion. Jews and Gentiles would never eat together. But Jesus turns all that stuff on his head. He ate with anybody and everybody. There's a famous painting by a medieval painter named Rublev. It's a portrait of the Trinity, painted in the early 1400s. So a portrait of the the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And and what's fascinating, I mean, nobody knows what God looks like, of course, and, and yet the artist pictures the Trinity sitting around a table. Take a look This is the the image of fellowship that the triune God enjoys all the time, the table. And, uh, and we can share in that fellowship, share the gospel with other people. Each week, you and I eat three meals a day. That's 21 opportunities each and every week for us to reflect the triune God, living with an open door, choosing people over busyness, over pressure, over fear. 
Rosaria Butterfield has these final words for us. She says, If the world saw Christians living in vital, life-giving communities with families and singles and children sharing a rhythm of life with extra time and hands and energy left over to lend a helping hand to those who don't yet know the Lord, perhaps they too could taste and see that the Lord is good. Perhaps our children would not live and speak and think one way in church and another way on Facebook or in school regarding Jesus as a prop to pull out for church or youth group. Perhaps our unsaved neighbors would regard us as the go-to people on the block when trouble hits, people who they can tell their deepest secrets, who go out of their way to help people in hard situations, people who have a sober handle on the problem of evil in the world. Perhaps the transparency of our lives would help people to see how even when Christians lose, the gospel heals and helps and advances. Perhaps our everyday lives would reveal that the hand of God reaches into the hardest situations imaginable and that nothing is impossible with God. She says, hospitality is the ground zero of the Christian life. What's standing in our way? I think it's no coincidence that when Jesus gave his followers a practice to remember him by, it was a practice that involved eating and drinking, the breaking of bread and the drinking of wine. And today we we tend to observe the Lord's Supper in a very formal or even liturgical way. But the earliest Christians, they they celebrated, they commemorated Jesus really in the context of a full meal, a, a banquet. The table was the primary symbol of Christian worship, not the pulpit or or the worship music, but the table. And so in a moment, as we partake of the Lord's Supper together, I want us to let this experience drive us towards fellowship, not only with each other, but, but with others who need to share in the gospel hope that we have. And today we're going to observe communion just a little bit differently than we usually do. Don't panic, but, uh, Uh, You'll notice there's tables positioned throughout the sanctuary. And so in a moment, uh, we'll pray. And you can just take your time and go to any one of these tables and partake. There's some uh, gluten-free option right down here if you need that. And uh, let me encourage you, don't go to the table by yourself. Uh, Connect to somebody else here, maybe somebody in your growth group or or somebody you serve with or just a friend. But but find somebody and connect with them, and you can kind of huddle up and... and, and, uh, commemorate communion together. Uh, uh, Make it a communal celebration of what Jesus has done. And if uh, for some reason, if you're unable to get up, then then in just a moment, you can raise your hand and somebody will bring uh, the elements to you so you don't have to worry about that. A couple other things we want to mention. First, uh, this communion celebration is an open invitation. It's an open door with one important caveat. Uh, it's open to, to all of us who have a personal relationship with Jesus. If you're a person who has turned to Christ as, as the forgiver of your sins, then you're welcome to participate. If that's not a decision that you can point to in your life, not a decision you've made, then, then I would encourage you to use this time just to reflect on what Christ has done and what that might mean in your own life. Uh, in, on the screens, in just a moment, you'll see two 
prayers listed. One is a prayer for, for those of us who are believers in Jesus, those who've made that commitment to turn towards him as the forgiver of our sins. And the second prayer is a prayer for people who are seeking, people who are trying to make sense of all that Jesus did and what it really means to follow him. And so if you're a believer, if you've made that commitment, then, then join us in celebrating what Christ has done. If you've not yet come to that point, uh, we're really honored that you're here. And uh, I'd encourage you to pray this prayer. Uh, in just a few moments, you can just use the time to come to terms and nobody's going to think any less if you just stay in your seat and, and spend some time reflecting. Finally, let me just warn all of us with the same warning that the New Testament extends. It's a warning against partaking of the Lord's Supper in what the scripture calls an unworthy manner. Uh, if you know in your heart you've got some unreconciled sin or, or open rebellion against God, that if there's some things you need to work out, then, then use this time to, to, to talk to God about those things and, and, and don't partake of communion. Just, just sit and reflect. So communion uh, was created by Jesus as a way for his followers to commemorate what he's done for us, to commemorate God's love, his redeeming rescue of us. And the bread and the juice, they represent his body broken and his blood spilled to pay the penalty for our sins. And as the Bible tells us, on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and after giving thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat and drink, you uh, commemorate the Lord's death until he comes. Let me pray for us. God, we are grateful for what you've done for us in sending your son, Jesus. And we want to be people who are not just grateful for it in this moment, but who let it show up in our lives each and every day. That we start to live more and more like the example that Jesus gives us, with an open door, with an eye to people who need to know who you are. We know that that the death of Christ is not only for our benefit, but for the benefit of others. And I pray that you would use this time to help us to reflect on what it means in our own life and how it needs to show up in the days and weeks to come, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.